Do you know what it is? It's a stamp. The 1115 service is so smart. Nine o'clock service, they said it was a mail sticker. Stamp is the correct answer. Okay. How much do you think this costs to buy this? You can put this on a letter and it can go to a different place. How much do you think it costs? Make a guess. Is it like a dollar, a million dollars, one penny? How much does it cost? I don't really know. Okay, that's good. Anybody have any guesses? Yeah, what's your guess? Uh, or $21. $21. That's a very good guess. Actually, here's the price. It's about 35 cents. 35 cents for this little stamp. Now look at the screen and take a peek at this. You know what that is? I'll, give, I'll just tell you. That's another stamp. That's another stamp. Do you know how much that one's worth? You're probably trying to read right now. It says 24 cents. It's not, it used to be worth 24 cents. Do you know how much that stamp's worth now? $3.5 million. $3.5 million. Now, why is this one worth 35 cents? No, they're, sorry, that does look like it's a tremendously large stamp. It's, <laughs> that's good. You're taking a schema that you know about and you're applying it. That's education. You're doing really great, pal. Is they're the same size. I made it big so you could see it. So the deal is, it's because there's like millions of these. These are really easy to find. They're everywhere. But that, there's only like three or four of those in the world. See how the plane's upside down? It's called an upside down Jenny is the name of that stamp. I don't know why I told you that. But that's the, that's the type of stamp. There's only three of those in the world. So listen to this. Here's the truth. The more rare something is, the more valuable it is. Like, what's more valuable, gold or rocks? Rocks. Gold is a rock. I like your answer. What's more valuable, gold or paper? Gold. You got it. So because there's a lot of paper and there's not very much gold, the more rare something is, the more valuable it is. Therefore, the thing that is, you're going to love this, the thing that is the rarest in the universe is the most valuable. What is the rarest thing in the universe? There's only one of these. People. No, there's one, two, three, four. There's plenty of those. Very good answer, though. Here it is. There's only one God. There's only one God. And there's nobody like him. He is the most rare thing. And he's the most valuable thing. Good job, guys. Thanks for playing along. Head back to your parents now. Good work. Let's give these kids a hand. We are in Psalm 113 this morning. We're mixing it up. I know normally you're like, wait a minute, where's the band? I'm supposed to do like four songs. Don't you know? I'm watching the looks on your faces right now. We're in Psalm 113 this morning. If you need a copy of God's word, um, slip your hand up. Steve, can you help me uh, distribute some um, blue covered copies? You need a Bible this morning. A Bible is to sermon what scuba gear is to deep sea diving. You're not going to survive the next 40 minutes if you don't have this, okay? So we're in Psalm 113. We're going to talk today about worship. We're going to talk today about worship. There's a lot of uh, misconstructions in our head about what worship is and what it's trying to do. 
And uh, our psalm today is going to help us with it. Let's talk about some stuff that worship isn't, okay? What isn't worship? Worship, first of all, is, it's not another word for singing, all right? Sometimes we think like, oh, worship is like a special word that just means singing. That's an expensive thing to kick. It's not another word for singing, okay? Worship is not, it's not singing, worship is not um, our job on Sunday. As in, remember this song when you were kids? Um, The blessings come down when the praise goes up. The blessings come down as the praise, there's motions to it. The blessings come, okay. That's really bad thinking. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. It's not our job. It's not like God's job is to bless and it's our job to praise and it's like a transaction that we make. Not so. Thirdly, (laughs) worship is not supposed to, um, it's not a way to build enthusiasm for church visitors. Okay, there's some churches that want to have like a dynamic music time so that new people who come will think that this is an exciting church. If you're new here, if you're visiting this morning, um, this is an exciting church. This is an exciting church, but we don't use music to like excite the room for visitors, okay? Also, we don't use, uh, a worship is not a way to try to get people to give more money to the church. It's not like you do like, a, like the tearful song right before you pass the plate to try to get people to give more money. I um, have heard of churches that will do their, position their offering in the place for maximum um, effect. Um, Crossroads has done a study where we, no, not really. Crossroads doesn't do studies. I hope, I hope you would know that about your church, all right? So it's not a way to build enthusiasm. It's not a way to um, build excitement for the offering. It's definitely not this. It's, worship is definitely not a warm-up for preaching, okay? I, like, did you, isn't this kind of like the way we normally think of it, that we have a couple of songs that get us ready for preaching? I mean, to sit and listen to a man talk for 45, maybe 50 minutes. That might be the hardest thing we ask you to do in a week. So what you need before you do that is to stretch it out. That's not true. Worship is not getting us ready for preaching. Today's sermon is a stick, a fork in it, it's done, to the idea that worship warms us up for preaching. If worship truly ends when preaching begins, then the preacher should quit. We study the Bible and learn about God to become better worshipers. We don't worship to get ready for preaching. We preach to become better worshipers. Worship is the goal of the Christian faith. Knowledge is a way that we ensure that our worship conforms to what God has revealed to us in the Bible. The psalm that we're studying today points us to these truths. This psalm will inform our minds about what worship is, and it will inflame our hearts for worship. It's a call to worship and an example of worship itself. It's Psalm 113. This series is, um, Rod asked Neil and I to preach on our favorite psalms. So that's kind of where we're going. Rod preached Psalm 1, Neil preached Psalm 73. I'm in 113 today. It's one of my favorite psalms. Just open it up to it uh, in your Bible. Uh, Growing up, my grandpa um, was a pastor, and my dad is a pastor, and um, when we would go over to Grandpa's house for dinner, it was one of these, um, can, you, can you picture it? Like everybody sits around the table. It's like one long table, Every, like no kid's table. Everybody's at the same table. And all the food is by Grandpa, all of it. 
okay? And he has all the plates by him too. And when it's time to eat, he serves the women first from oldest to youngest. He starts with his wife and he says, Lois, that's her name. Lois, do you want any chicken? She's like, oh, a little bit of chicken. So he's like, okay. Grandpa puts it on her plate, passes it down, pass this down to your grandmother, pass it down. Then all the way down, all the women from oldest to youngest. Then all of the boys from youngest to oldest. And then he would serve himself last. He'd come to Matthew. Do you want any green beans? No. Not really. I don't like green beans. He's like, okay then. <laughs> you just learned to never say no to food with grandpa because that meant you were getting way more. And like, I could use, I could use a little green beans probably. I'm like, let me put one on there for you. But right before, so everybody has their food now, and you've just been waiting. This has been like 10 minutes to get all this food passed out, grandpa style. And he would say, all right, all right, before we pray for the food, someone say a psalm. Someone just, someone recite a psalm for us before we pray. Oh boy. Well, I was the oldest grandchild. So if no one said a psalm, he'd look at me. Matthew, say a psalm for us. Okay. Like, my grandpa put the fun in fundamentalism, okay? My dad put the mental, and I added the duh. So he would turn to me, say a psalm, and I would, I would say Psalm 113. My dad taught it to me when I was young. This is one of my favorite psalms. Let's, let's stand together as we take a peek at Psalm 113. I'm mostly going to be preaching out of the uh, ESV but the ESV wasn't tr- a translation when I was 11, so I memorized it out of the NIV. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, your word is a sword and light for our path and bread for our souls. And so we pray you would use it this morning to convict us, to guide us, and to feed us. We need you. In the name of your son, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Psalm's got three main sections. Okay, we're going to go through them in order. The first section is verses one through three, and it shows us that God deserves universal praise. God deserves universal praise. The second section is verses four through six. There, the psalm calls us to praise God for his cosmic goodness. And the third section is verses 7 through 9. Sorry, praise God for his cosmic greatness. 
cosmic greatness. The third section, verses seven through nine, is praise God for his crouching goodness. Crouching goodness. When's the last time you heard the word crouching without the word dragon um, immediately afterwards? We'll, we'll see it when we get there, okay? There it is. That's, those are the three parts of the psalm. We'll be walking through them in order. If you're ready to dive in, say dive. I like it. Thank you. Here it is. First section. God deserves universal praise. Here's verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise the servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. The point here is that the Lord should be praised by everyone. The Lord should be praised by everyone. Who's called to worship him? Everyone. The psalm next sort of specifies the servants of the Lord. The servant, you know, praise those servants of the Lord. There's a little squabble going on in a couple of the commentaries that I read. Some people think the servants of the Lord, that means the priests. Some people think the servants of the Lord means, well, the Jewish people are his servant, it says later on. So which, here's the good news, okay? Now, God's people, we're, we're a, a kingdom of priests. We are all a royal priesthood. It's us, okay? It's, we can end the squabble right there. We're called to praise the Lord. We're called to recognize the responsibility of worshiping our master. We are called to prize the privilege of worshiping our great king. God deserves universal praise so that the Lord should be praised by everyone. Secondly, the Lord should be praised at all times. This is verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalm continues by telling us that God should be worshiped without limit by time. Peter tells us, this is 2 Peter 3.8, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So God exists outside of time. Did you know time is one of the things that God made? He made it. He doesn't, he's not like constricted by it. He's not measured by it. He doesn't have like a certain number of years that he's been around. He was around before time, if that makes sense. There's an old theology um, question that says, um, what was God doing before he made the world? And my favorite answer to that is Augustine who said, devising tortures for people who ask foolish questions. (laughs) That's pretty good. I mean, but technically there is no before time. In order to have the word before, you have to have time. So God has not been limited by time. So therefore, God's praise isn't stopped by time. We should be praising now. We should be praising forever, the psalm calls us to. Not just on Sunday mornings. Not just Sundays. Not just Sunday mornings. Not just Sunday mornings before the, sermon, the sermon starts and one song at the end, unless the preacher went long and we cut it. We worship God at all times. We praise him at all times. Similarly, thirdly, this is verse 3, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. This means the Lord should be praised in all places. He should be praised by everyone. He should be praised at all times. He should be praised in all places. God should be worshipped without limit by time or by space. From the rising of the sun in the east, that's probably not east where I'm pointing, sorry, to where it sets in the west. Praise God everywhere is what this verse is telling us. But now take a peek at this. There's a new element. Have you, have you heard it in the verses there? There's a new element that's bubbling up as well. Notice this little phrase, the name of the Lord. Can you see it? It's there three times in the first three verses. The name of the Lord. God's name in our translation is the Lord, which is in all caps. And it's a wonderful concept that we often just pass by without even really thinking about. 
It's a Hebrew word that's spelled Y-H-W-H, and it's pronounced, we don't know. The Jewish people viewed the name as so holy they didn't pronounce it, so its pronunciation has been lost. We've, we've tried to make some guesses on it. We took the vowels that we know out of the word Adonai, which is uh, the Hebrew word for Lord. We put those in, so we've come up with this. The best guess we have is Yahweh. But maybe more importantly than how it's pronounced, get this, God's name is his revelation to us. It's his revelation to us. It would be really easy, and it's pretty common, to try to guess what God's like. People try to guess what God's like. And what you do when you, when you do the guessing game is you start with something that you like and then you just try to like make it like big. So we like things that are strong and powerful. So like we take God therefore must be all powerful. We like things that are smart. And so we said God must know everything. He must be omniscient. And we just kind of like try to take concepts that we like and blow them up larger. That can be dangerous, okay? This only gets us so far, and it often gets us into lots of trouble. Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, once said that many people who think they are talking about God are only talking about themselves in a really loud voice. That's, that's pretty good, too. This name, Yahweh, the Lord, This is his revelation to us. It tells us he's not like what we think. He is who he is. This name was given first to Moses at the burning bush. It reveals to us, among other things, that God is a person. The Lord, he has a name. He's a person. He's not some abstract concept that you need to study, that's supposed to be just studied and explained like gravity. He's not like that. He's not some cosmic force to be felt or experienced or used, okay? This has nothing to do with, you know, Luke and Yoda, okay? He has a name, the Lord. He's a person. He's a person for us to meet. He's a person for us to encounter. He is to be worshipped. He's to be trusted. He has a name. And look, look how this works. We need to trust him because if we don't, if we don't trust God, we're saying something else is more trustworthy than him. If we don't obey God, we're saying, God, there's something else that's more authoritative in my life than you. If we don't love God, we're saying, there's something else that's actually more lovable than you, God. This is the real worship war. Worship war, that's a little phrase that's been used quite a bit to describe the, the little um, skirmish between guitar players and organists. Um, but that's not really what it is. Did you know, it's, it's, this is a pretty helpful illustration, I hope. You know worship's a fight? It's a fight, okay? It's a fight. And it's always been this way. It started this way at the beginning. It started this way with um, Adam and Eve. There was a command that God gave them and a promise that he gave them. He gave them the command, don't eat from the fruit of that particular tree. And he gave them a promise. If you do this, then you would have his, his presence and his blessing. And then the snake showed up. And what did the snake say? The snake said, did God really say that? He's trying to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's promises and doubt God's command. It's a worship war. 
It's a fight. The fight's on. Secondly, just to, like think about how this goes. You can think through the entire Bible in these terms. Um, let's go to the Tower of Babel. Okay, Tower of Babel is a great illustration. The decision to worship is a decision to obey God's command and to trust His promise. Will they do it or not? God's command to the people for the Tower of Babel is spread out, spread out and subdue the earth, fill the earth. And here's God's promise. God promised them, look, I'm not going to destroy the world by a flood anymore. Remember? Rainbow? Remember that part? Did they obey him? Did they believe his promise? No, they didn't. What did they do? What did the people who who, uh, built the Tower of Babel, what did they do instead of spreading out? Somebody tell me. I forgot to study this. What did they do? Yeah. Yeah, they all got together. They decided, look, here's what we need to do. We need to build an enormous tower so that the top of it can reach up to heaven. Well, why would you do that? Well, God told you to spread out and fill the earth, and you decided, no, we have a better plan. Why would you build a tower that high? Remember, the other thing they said is, um, we need to um, bake the bricks. That's a little part of the story that people don't remember, because it's hard to make a, you know, a little felt man on a diagram to show you when baking the bricks. They baked the bricks for the Tower of Babel. Why did they do that? They wanted it waterproof. They didn't believe God's promise. God promised, I'm not going to destroy the world by a flood. And they're like, we don't believe you. We're building a tower that's going to be high enough so if a flood ever comes again, we can be above it. We're going to be equal with God. The big bricks, you send your worst, God. We're ready for you. It's a fight. Okay? Next, my wife said that nobody would understand what I'm talking about unless I actually got out the gloves. Okay, it's a fight. Think about Abraham. When God calls Abraham to lek lakah, walk before me. The end of Joshua, chapter 24, verses like, uh, like 2 and 3, says that Abraham in Ur, where he was from, was worshiping other gods. Their forefathers were worshiping other gods, and God called him to leave that place and to walk before him. It's a worship war. Uh, um, think again, um, the, the story of the Exodus. That's a worship war. That is, what are the ten plagues? That's worship war. There's deities in Egypt that are, um, that are ruling over God's people. And each of the plagues is God's way of saying, no, I'm superior to that. There's a God of the sun. Okay, how about a plague of darkness? I'll show you who's in control. The final plague, it's, it's toppling their greatest God, Pharaoh, who thinks that he's God. God's like, okay, we'll, we'll take your oldest kid. That, it's, it's a worship war. And just think about the difference there. Think about the difference between their old master, Pharaoh, who enslaved them, who made them work, and then the, the God who rescues them, who calls them, not only, he says to Israel, Israel is my son, not my slave, my son. And then to worship God, what do you do? You have a day of rest. Just kind of hear that for a second. If you are an enslaved people, who've been building all sorts of monuments. Was there ever a day off for them? No, just hear the, like, see how God sets himself up as, I'm different than that God. I'm different. It's a worship war. I mean, this continues out throughout the entire Bible. Every judge in the book of Judges, every conquest of Joshua, every judge that comes in Judges, Every king that shows up in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and the kings and the chronicles, each of them is a different round in this fight. 
This fight between who will they choose to pick? Will they obey God's command? Will they trust God's promises? Or will they not? When Satan comes in to tempt Christ in um, Matthew chapter 4, Satan just goes right to the root of it. He says, at the end, he says, Worship me, Jesus, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Think of what Jesus could have said to him. Here's some ideas I had. Worship you? I remember the day we made you. That would have been fair to say. This would have been less subtle. (laughs) Now hear this. Those who annoy the incarnate Son of God in the wilderness shall have a boulder dropped upon their wicked toes. Just made up a new rule. But instead, what did Jesus do? He recited God's commands. He trusted God's promises and named them from Deuteronomy. And he ends the whole thing in Matthew 4.10 with these words. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here we find ourselves. We're pulled into this. There's a worship war going on. What will we choose? The call goes out to us today. Who will you worship? Whose promises will you trust? Whose commands will you obey? There's a worship war. All right, secondly, let's get some ammunition for this war. This is the second part. This is verses four through six. And this is the call to praise God for his cosmic greatness. Praise God for his cosmic greatness. Start in verse four, which says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Here's Here's the truth of this. The Lord is greater than the greatest created thing. He's greater than the greatest created thing. This is the little lesson we had for the kids, okay? God is greater than the greatest created thing. Look at the things that it it mentions here. Nations. The Lord is above the nations. Think about how much people love nations. Nations compete against each other. Remember how Neil explained to us the England and Australia ashes match? Remember how excited he got? Still trying to figure that one out. But we love nations. Don't we think about the Olympics? The Olympics, think about the opening ceremonies. What are we watching? It's the parade of nations. And here they come, and there's enormous national flags, and there's the national banner, and it's our national team, and this is our country. Now, now think, think about this. The man who is the, the greatest, who won the event, what prize do they give him? Here's, here's the thing they do for him. We want you to stand on a higher pedestal, and, and here's your prize. We're going to play the song for your country while your flag is raised in front of you. We love our country, don't we? Then the cameras come like zooming in. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw Gabby Douglas's uvula on TV. <laughs> we got pretty close on her. Wow. Nice complexion. There it is, and we just zoom in, and our hearts, our own eyes fill with tears. That's a confession. And our own hearts burst with pride right before a baseball game, right before every football game, before every basketball game. What do we do? We sing the national anthem. Why? Because we love our country. At every military funeral, during Memorial Day parade, our hearts burst with pride for our country. But think of the evil that results when we love a nation too much. 
too much. Think of the ethnic-based national purity movements that have ravaged our world with their evil. Think of the evil of fascism. Now hear this. Glorious news from this psalm. God is above every nation. He is high above the nations. He doesn't have a favorite nation, not even ours. But it's bigger than that. Look at this next part of the verse. It's bigger than that. His glory is above the heavens. His glory is above the heavens, okay? When the Russian cosmonauts flew into space for the very first time, first people into space, they took a capsule and they went up there. When they landed, the leader of the Soviet Union said, we looked, he's an atheist, he said, we looked out of the capsule and we saw no God up there. To which some believers retorted, if you had gotten out of your capsule, you would have seen him. I love that line. God is greater. He is, his glory is above the heavens. It is above the planets. It is above the comets and the nebula. It's above stars and star clusters and constellations and galaxies and dark matter, whatever that is. It is greater than celestial mechanics. It's greater than theoretical astronomy and gamma ray astronomy and ultraviolet and x-ray astronomy. It's greater than all cosmology. God's glory is above the heavens, but it's even bigger than that. Consider next, this is verse 5. Verse 5 says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? God is not only greater than the greatest created thing, he is in, this is the point, God, the Lord is in a greatness category all by himself. He's not like a star except brighter. He's not like you and me except stronger and smarter. Who is like him? No one. He is in a category all by himself. Now let's allow the authors of scripture to speak to us right now. Let's listen. As our contemplation of God's greatness begins to move past what we can say with words. I, if you're looking for some verses to memorize this semester, college students, here's four for you. Um, I commend them to you. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Deuteronomy 3.24, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty as yours. Psalm 35, verse 10, the psalmist writes, All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. And finally, Psalm 71, 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? God is greater than the greatest created thing. He is in a greatness category all by himself. And thirdly for this section, God has a caring greatness. A caring greatness. Look at verse 6. 
Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who looks down, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth, says the ESV. The NIV says, who stoops to look down on the heavens and the earth. This is a staggering truth. God, Anselm calls him the greatest possible being, the greatest possible being, looks down, far down, on the heavens and the earth. And he cares about them. In one sense, it reminds me of the the Tower of Babel again. Um, Anybody who doesn't think that there's like jokes in the Bible just isn't reading very carefully. Because the Tower of Babel, they're going to build this tower all the way up to heaven so that they can be equal with God and safe from him. The top of the tower will be up in heaven. They're so excited about it. So they get like their best people working on it engineering guys are all together and they've got the plan and brick bakers are working on it and the builders are in there and they're building and they're working and they're working and it's going up and it's going up and it's going up and they're doing their best and God's like, you know what? I'm going to have to go down and see that thing. That's the joke, okay? (laughs) They're like, we're almost there, guys. 50 more feet, and I think we're going to be, we're going to poke right through that little blue part. And God's like, um, somebody got a Google Maps for that place? I've heard of it, but I don't even see it from where I'm at. Are you guys, are you guys seeing it? Ooh, there, nope. That's Everest. I made that one. Okay. No, I, I made that one too. Hey, can anybody even see that thing? Field trip, let's go. We got to go down to see this tower. This thing that's going to be equal with me. I can't even see it from where I am. I love that. But look what it says. God, who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look at the heavens and the earth. This forms a great transition to our third point. First, God deserves universal praise. Second, praise God for his cosmic greatness. Now verse 7 through the end. Praise God for his crouching goodness. The NIV says that the Lord stoops down. This is where I'm getting my word crouching. He stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. And what does he see there? Verse 7. My point here is he sees the needy. He sees the needy. Verse 7 says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. The poor and the needy. These are people who have no assets. These are people who can never repay. Don't give them a loan because they can't repay that. They have nothing left to trade. They have nothing to exploit. That's who God helps. Why does God help those people? Well, because this. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need what they have. They don't have anything. He's like, those are my type of people. I need exactly what you have. Nothing. He helps them because he's a God who helps. He doesn't help people to get their money. God doesn't help people to get their influence. He doesn't help people to get their approval. He does not help people to get their vote. He raises and he lifts them because he's a raising and lifting God. He's a self-sufficient God who doesn't need anything. He raises and lifts others. Question, did he have to? Does God have some moral obligation 
to help needy people. That's a thick one for a morning service. I'll answer it this way. There is not some sort of standard that God has to try to get a 10 out of 10 on. In that sense, he doesn't have to do anything. Here's the standard that he has. He has to be himself. He has to be himself. This is his righteousness. His righteousness is his commitment to be who he is. He is a caring God. He is a loving God. He is a rescuing God. Not because those things are great in and of themselves, but because they're him, they're great. So he has to be himself. So first, verse seven, he sees the needy. Secondly, verse eight, he exalts the needy. He exalts the needy. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. This teaches us humanity's poverty is not just material, it's also spiritual. So God's provision not only deals with hunger and money, it also deals with shame and humiliation. God's restoring these people to a proper position within their community. But beyond this, the psalm promises an abundance of exaltation. He's seen them with princes. What does that mean? We'll return to that. Thirdly, he sees the needy. He exalts the needy. Thirdly, his love reaches down to each individual person. The way our world works, the way society works, we like to group needy and poor people into a bunch. We talk about them, the poor. Let's talk about people who live below the poverty line, them. God does not see people grouped. He sees individual people. Look at this in verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. We're past categories right now. Now we're talking about a girl who has no children and the shame and darkness in that culture of that predicament and God sees her. This is right out of, this is word for word out of 1 Samuel 2. This is Hannah's prayer. The last two verses have been word for word out of Hannah's prayer. Remember Hannah? Um, The other wife um, in her home had multiple kids. Hannah was loved by God and by her husband and had no kids and she was mournful and she prayed and asked God. And when he gave her Samuel, she rejoiced and wrote this. Now one commentator that I read said that the psalm begins with a bang, but it ends with a whisper. It ends with a whisper. It seems like we started in the heavenlies, but the ending kind of shrinks down to like one lady in one house with kids. I'm willing to bet that this commentator does not actually have children. Because anyone labeling a joyous mother with a house full of children as a whisper um, has not been to my house. No whispering going on um, at my house, just a lot of outside voices. I disagree. I think this psalm reveals what the Lord is like. It reveals his specific type of greatness. He is not our favorite strengths pushed to infinity. He is who he says he is. So let's conclude here. And let's think about the psalm in terms of the pattern of Christ's own life. 
Remember this? We're going to use Philippians 2 and Paul's words there that talk to us about Christ. Paul tells us that Christ had cosmic greatness, but though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He saw the needy. He displayed his crouching goodness by emptying himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus loves children. God loves children so much. He not only provides for children in the Old Testament, he not only, Jesus not only said, let the little children come to me. He doesn't, not only says that, but um, as be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Even more than that, how much does Jesus love children? He became one. He became one. He became a child. The psalm shrinks, Christ shrinks himself down, and the maker of the universe becomes a baby. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He not only saw us as poor in in the dust, he not only joined us in the dust, he himself became dust. He joined us on the ash heap. But through his death and resurrection, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But how do we fit into that? How do we fit into that exaltation? How, according to Psalm 113, how has Christ seated us with princes? He said that he seats us with princes, with the princes of our people. Hear this promise, too glorious for me to explain to you. If you come up to me afterwards, like, tell me some more about that verse. I have nothing to say. I can only read it and try to get my heart around it. Revelation 3.21. Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Here's the promise for you. You will sit not just with the princes of your people, but Christ became one of our people and we will sit with him on his throne. We will be seated with the prince of peace as he reigns on his throne. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who stoops down to look upon the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the barren woman in her home as the happy mother of children. We're using this psalm as a call to worship as a community. We're going to move now into a time of response. We have different ways for people to respond. We have mikvah bowls up at the front for people who want to express repentance and dedication. We have the Lord's Supper available on tables on the outside.
And I want us as a church to fight this fight. I want us to, as we, as we sing these words, let's push past. This is my favorite song. That's an older one. I like this. I don't, let's push right past it and find some declaration about the greatness of God and just light our hearts with it. Let's find some promise that he's made to us and grab, flee to Christ with it and grab onto it, this promise. Let's pray. Great God, who is like you? I thank you that you are not just the, the, the sum combination of our strengths and our preferences, but you are who you said you are. And it it's, ends up being so much better than what we could possibly imagine. God, would you help our church this morning? Help each of us. Some of us come just ready to worship right now, ready to worship before the sermon started with such joy in our hearts. God, others of us come limping in to church this morning with with difficulties and burdens and cares. God, this morning, we just cast it all on you because you care for us. We decide in this service, in this moment, to trust you. God, we decide that you win this worship war. Who is like you? You're so great and so powerful and you care so much. And what you have done for us is so fantastic. And what you've promised us is so great. Our hearts turn to you. Help us, God. Give us voices to sing the greatness of your name. It's in that name we pray, Jesus. Amen.